Well, it's wonderful to be back uh, with you again uh, today, and we're going to continue our our look at uh, the book of Ephesians. As you know, this series we're talking about how we should live, how we should walk as uh, believers of Christ. And uh, I want to give you a bit of a challenge, and I'll do something with this challenge next week. My challenge for you is to read uh, the letter of Ephesians in one sitting 20 times between now and the middle of November. So a couple of times a week, if you read through the letter of Ephesians, it will take you about 10 minutes, I guess, in one sitting. Not only do I want you to read through it, I want you to buy yourself a little notebook and I want you to start writing it out. Uh, this is something we did in our church uh, last year as we were going through the book of Ephesians. We've done it for a number of the, the smaller letters and I've just got to encourage you, it's just a, a wonderful thing to start meditating on God's word in that way. Actually, God actually instructed, he instructed the kings of Israel to do the very, that very thing in Deuteronomy 17. He said, if you're going to be a king of mine, If you're going to lead my people, there's a couple of things you mustn't do, but there's a couple of things you must do. And he instructed them to have the law of God, whether that was just the book of Deuteronomy or the first five books of the Old Testament, and to write them out. So you can do Ephesians. It won't take long and it'll be a great blessing. So that's just a bit of a challenge for you. So if you could turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, that's going to be our text today. And we'll start looking at that in a, in a moment or two. So Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 will be our text and we'll, I said we'll read that shortly. Like a, a doorway from the classroom of knowledge to the workshop of experience, most of uh, Paul's letters will contain a hinge, contain a point inside that letter where there's a shift from principle to practice. A shift from profound doctrinal truths to the believer's responsibility to to work out those truths in their own life. And Ephesians is a letter that's no different to most of Paul's letters where there is a hinge. And this morning we're going to be right at that hinge point in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It's a hinge point because the first three chapters, we've been, if you read through it, you will discover that you've been chosen by the Father, you've been redeemed by the Son, Your salvation is sealed by the the Holy Spirit. That all this is a gift of God's marvellous grace. You know, you were dead in your sin. And yet God has made you alive. As a demonstration of His grace. In Ephesians, it it shows us that those who are far off and you can't get any further away than being dead have now been brought near, drawn near. Christ has removed the, 
the hostility. And he's created himself, for himself, one new people. One new person. You could say, a believer has been transformed from a sinner to a saint. And Christ is building his church. That's the in a really broad summary of the, the theology that comes out of the first three chapters of this letter. And now, Paul turns to the practical. We're at the hinge and the door is opened. Okay, so what? The question, so what? So what should all this mean? Primarily to the Ephesian believers. So what difference does it make to this group of people, to this church at this time? And as we discover that, we'll we'll uncover what it means for you and I. So let's, uh, let's read. Let's read these six verses together. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you're sliding your Bible or, or whatever you do, uh, it's pretty similar to the NIV, which I know is the common version here. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all hum- humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. So what is Paul doing at this hinge in this letter? What is the primary thing that he wants to impress upon these Ephesian believers? I think it's a couple of things in the first three verses. Firstly, he wants to show them the manner of how they should walk. And secondly, he wants to show the means by which they should walk or live. So you've got manner and you've got means. Right at the beginning here, in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or urge you to live. Now, this is not uh, some form of mild instruction. Okay, This is not an instruction where I come to you and say, come on. Come on, Josh, let's just, let's just, I encourage you to just, just walk with me in a, in this way a little bit. This is an urgent cry. It's an exhortation. Probably a better word here is, I exhort you. I exhort you to, to, to walk in this way. It's a strong appeal. And you can understand the strength of this appeal because of what he's just discussed in the first three chapters. And also underlying the strength of this appeal as we go through this text is the fact that there is some disunity that's being formed throughout the church. 
So he's moving their, their thinking. He says, look, you're just not behaving in the way that you should be behaving. You're not behaving according to who you call yourself to be. And so he's strongly urging, he's appealing, he's exhorting, he's encouraging. This is what this word means, to walk, to conduct themselves according to their belief. That's primarily where he's going here. He's using this metaphor to walk, to say, okay, you need to walk the talk. If we want to put it in our modern day English, that's what he's saying. Walk the talk. You claim to be this, that and the other thing. You claim to be a follower of Christ. You claim to be unified in the spirit. You claim to, to display these things in your Christian walk. But I'm urging you, I'm encouraging you to, to walk the talk. Because this is, you can see that the, the, the apostle's heart here for his, these people he has tenderly cared for for three years. And he's hearing that you're not living up to what I've taught you. You're walking in the flesh and you're not walking in the spirit. So here it's a, it's a positive exhortation. And the basis of this exhortation is to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is a really interesting word, worthy. I don't know about you, but when I was a, a young fellow, when I was a, a small boy, in our kitchen we used to have a, an old-fashioned pair of scales. Now for some of you this may not be too old-fashioned, but it was a pair of scales where it was a pair of balancing scales. I'm talking about you'd put some weight on one side, so maybe one or two pound on one side, and then you'd put your produce in a, a bowl on the other side, and when you measured out the one or two pounds, the scales would balance. So the weights would be equal. In this context, this is what worthy means. And it's fascinating, because the word worthy here means to to bring up the other beam of the scales. Okay? To balance out, to have some equilibrium. So your life and the way you walk is equal to what you talk. So he's trying to build into them right at the start here that, that your life needs to have some integrity and your, your walk needs to be balanced with your belief balanced to your calling and this calling relates not only to the experience of salvation that these believers in Ephesus had enjoyed the experience of salvation though they were adopted and elected by the father but also to their union into the body of Christ, the church. See, this walk is not just only individual. This walk is also corporate. 
It relates to not just the individual salvation that a believer enjoys, but it relates to how we interact within the body, how we interact with one another corporately. And it also reinforces in here, it's an interesting terminology, right? Walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To which you have been called shows who does the calling. God has done the calling upon your life. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to respond to that call upon your life. It is God who called the Ephesians into a relationship with him. So we continue this. So what is the manner and the means to which we should be walking? The very next verse says, okay, this is how your walk should look. Ephesians, you're a mix of Jew and Gentile. Now sometimes I think we underestimate that particular fact. As people groups, prior than coming to Christ, they hated one another with a hatred that I don't think we understand. I don't know if many of you have been through the Middle East, but when you go into the Middle East, you even see this hatred today. Brother against brother. And, uh, it is a, it is a, what I would say, vibrance the wrong word, but it, it's very in your face when you're there. You see this inbuilt hatred and, and I don't think we can sometimes appreciate what that looks like in this church. You've got a mix of Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, okay, you're, you have been born into this new people, this new people of God. Christ is the head. So the manner <coughs> in which you are commanded to walk with one another is with humility and gentleness and with patience. So what does it mean when you walk in Humility. What's the humility in opposite of? Pride. Pride and arrogance, right? God opposes the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. So he's calling these believers here to say, okay, the way you walk, the way you interact corporately with one another has to display humility. It's not about self. It's not about your preferences. Because when it is about yourself and when it's about your preferences, then what happens? Disunity reigns. Conflict reigns. And these are things that are concern, concerning to this apostle because when conflict reigns, the work of Christ is not being completed. He's not walking the talk. See, pride provokes disunity, whereas humility promotes unity. 
Humility at the heart and core of it is I want to serve others out of a love for Christ. I want to serve others out of a love for Christ. I'm okay to, to let go that preference to serve others. Not let go of doctrinal integrity, not let go of what truth is, but let go of preference. And that sometimes is the issue inside churches is that, that our preferences become truth. And yet they're just preferences. When preferences become truth, they are man-centred. Truth is given to us in God's word. That's what we should thirst after and follow and always check our hearts. Because where, where preferences occur, pride can well up. Where traditions occur, pride can well up because that's what we have always done. Look at Christ as the supreme example. What did he do? Left the glories of heaven above to put on humanity. To atone for sin. That's the true true view of humility secondly gentleness here it's another means by which we we should uh, walk our lives as instructed here to the Ephesians now what is gentleness? it's a fruit of the spirit right? it's something that's developed by the spirit it's the opposite to roughness But gentleness should never be confused with the idea of weakness. Never confused with the idea of weakness. Because gentleness, in this trait, there's an element, a high element of self-control. To be gentle, you've got to display a whole lot of self-control. As opposed to using power for the means of maybe retaliation or, or whatever it might be. And only a person that is truly controlled by the Holy Spirit can develop gentleness because it is a fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, there's patience. Now patience, this is more about endurance actually. So I want you to walk this life, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, walk the talk Humility, in the same way that Christ was humble, you are to be humble. Developing the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, and with patience or a cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. (coughs) As Paul knows full well what's going on inside this church, He knows full well the pressures of the society upon Ephesus. These folks were standing up for Christ and it was costing them their jobs. It was costing them their livelihood. Because in this particular environment, in Ephesus was the first place that trade guilds were really developed fully. You know what a trade guild is? If you were a silversmith, for instance, which was a pretty predominant trade inside Ephesus. If you were making silver, you'd be part of a guild, which was a union 
you would get together with fellow silver makers and you would worship false gods. So what would happen in that environment and when all of a sudden a silver maker becomes the faith in Christ? He'd rock up to his guild. He'd rock up to his meeting and they'd say, okay, if you want to be part of us, if you want to have the economic prosperity of, of doing silver things, you need to worship these gods. What are they going to do? And Christ is now my Lord. I can't. Ostracized. Economic downturn. Because they've chosen to stand for Christ. I think the best example of patience is a farmer. You sow a crop, right? You water it. You can't see any activity going on on the ground. Then all of a sudden a shoot will drop out through the soil and then months later a harvest will flourish. That's what endurance is like in the Christian life and in the Christian walk. It's one day at a time. It's a slow process. You think the greatest example of patient endurance is God himself, right? He's patiently enduring with you and I as we continue to walk away from him, as we continue to yield to the pressures of the world around about us as opposed to honouring his name. Think about in the Old Testament there. I can't get over the fact of how gracious and patient God was with the people of Israel. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped the Baals. They worshipped the Ashtaroths. They become completely synchronised with their culture. They became Canaanized, if you like, as they entered the Promised Land over that 400-year period that's described in Judges. And yet God was patient with them, continually provided a judge to restore them. Even though they didn't call out in repentance, God displayed his grace. So that's the the manner in which we should walk, with humility, gentleness and patience. And the means by which we should walk is explained in the next couple of verses. We should walk by bearing one another in love. Now to bear one another in love, this is a, another start of, of becoming, into, becoming tolerant to bear, to put up with. And it's a, a better translation is probably forbear. And as you think about the, the Ephesian believers, this would have become a major thing. As Judaism was on one side and Gentile beliefs on the other side, they're all trying to come to knowledge, full knowledge and faith in Christ. They would have had different worldviews, different things that, that changed them and, and different things that they lived by. But Paul was saying, you need to bear, you need to forbear with one another here. 
in love, out of a love for Christ. And you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This word eager is a beautiful word. It's to be especially um, conscious in discharging an obligation. And the obligation here is that, that I'm part of the family of God. For the Ephesians, they need to be zealous, they need to be eager to take pains to make every effort, to be conscientious. It's an active response. When you're eager about something, it's something actively you need to be involved with. And Paul's charging them here, you need to be actively involved in maintaining unity. To maintain is to already preserve what's already there, right? See, it's not the establishment of something new. He's not talking to them in a vacuum. He's saying, this is not something you need now to put on. This is something that's already there inside your church culture. You need to eagerly maintain this unity. Don't lose it. Don't let it be destroyed. Something already in your possession. Why? Because the Spirit of God is working in amidst you. That's what He comes to. You need to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is only brought out in any congregation, in any church, especially here for the Ephesians, because the Spirit of God dwelt within each one of them, individually and then corporately. You think about that. How can, as I look out in this congregation, I see many different people, right? All different backgrounds. All different ethnicities. What is the core of your unity as you sit here? The Spirit of God that dwells within you. It's the Word of God which you read together. That's the core of your unity. You have nothing else in common. There might be some family ties, sure, but the reality is, as His church, as a member of the body of Christ, Your unity is always through His Spirit. And this letter is full of this as you read through it. Remember, 20 times. And you'll see it. You'll see unity, left, right and centre here. He calls them to unity. You who are far off, now get you've been brought near. And the peace of God brings you near. Chapter 2 particularly is wonderful here. As you read through this letter, it's evident that there is some disunity, as I've mentioned before, amongst the believers. So hence this instruction by Paul. You've got to walk the talk. You've got to walk what you know. What you know about God and about salvation needs to translate into your everyday life. And this final phrase here about the bond of peace is a wonderful little phrase. Because how did he start the this section off? I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He understood what bondage was, right? He was chained to a guard and he He uses this word that I want you to be bound together. Bound together as a body of his people. To be bound there 
just like I'm a prisoner bound to, to this guard, I want you to realize that peace has strength when you're together. He's saying, you Ephesians, you are bound together by the Spirit in peace. This is the work of the Spirit. See, as you reflect on these three verses, what is the central message of these three verses? We've talked about the manner, we've talked about the means. The manner is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The means is with all humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love, maintaining, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that binds us together. The Spirit is the one that unifies. In obedience and elsewhere in Scripture, Galatians 5 is a classic on this, right? Galatians 5.25 talks about I want you to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Paul was getting the same thing when he spoke to that church. Your unity relates to the Spirit working amongst you through His Word. So if there's this unity in this place, I don't know, I haven't been here enough, I don't know what things go on in the church environment here. But there's disunity. You need to think through these things. Is the disunity caused because of my pride? Is it caused because of my preference? You need to repent of those things and and turn in humility and gentleness and patience forbear with one another knowing that the spirit can transform you for his glory verses 4 to 6 talk about the basis of unity and this is really fascinating I love these uh, three verses because the basis of unity here is the triune God we worship the basis of unity in verses 4, 5 and 6 is the, the triune God we worship. He is the example. You say, well, how does that work? Well, verse 4. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called for the one hope that belongs to your call. What's the central part of the triune God involved with that verse? The spirit of God. The one spirit shapes us and forms us into the universal church. Both Jews and Gentiles are no longer two entities, they are one. That's the point that Paul's making to this this church at Ephesus. And that oneness comes through the unity of the spirit. The Holy Spirit provides access to God. You'll read that in, in Ephesians 2, 16 to 22. This provides hope. Now, hope as presented throughout the book of Ephesians is the eager outworking of God's plan that all things will be headed up in Christ. Ephesians 1.9 And although the believers are, are presently seated with Christ, in the future they will be trophies of His grace. 
further being brought near to God, united into one body in Christ and reconciled to God. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 talks about that. You see, hope for the believer, hope for, for, for these believers in Ephesus and even for you and I is not what we hear so often in the world, oh, I hope so, I hope something goes like that, right? Hope for the believer is an absolute certainty that God will deliver what he has promised. An absolute certainty. And this hope is produced by God's call on your life. And central to this is God's Spirit who provides us this hope. Secondly, verse 5, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The second person of the Trinity. One Lord, Christ himself. One faith. I think uh, contextually, this is an objective faith. It's referring to the substance of faith, a common body of belief. And I say that because down later in chapter 4, he calls us to obtain the unity of faith, or he calls the Ephesians to attain the unity of faith which is about maturing. It's about using God's word to mature and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So in here I think faith is an an objective faith, not a subjective faith. And thirdly, in here, talk about baptism. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now this is in a... I don't think this is water baptism. I don't think it's spirit baptism in the context of these scriptures. I think Paul is using baptism as a metaphor, like he does in Romans 6. And because it's part of the triad of, of, of things related to Christ, it seems to be a metaphor used for union with Christ. He's using the term metaphorically as the believer's baptism into Christ's death and into his resurrection, as you see in Romans 6. See, believer's baptism into Christ signifies our union with him. And thirdly, in verse 6, you have God the Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God the Father of all. This refers in this context to God being the Father of all believers. The all there is believers. So that's who he's talking to. And he's exhorting these believers to know that God the Father is over all. He is, he is sovereign position over all believers. This not only refers to spiritual authority, but to every aspect of life. If we take God's sovereignty seriously, the result will be unity, contentment and joy. See, God is supreme. He is overall. Theologians talk about that being his transcendence. 
He is above all creation, beyond all creation. He is over all creation. But in this context, he's over believers, both in their lives daily and in their salvation. He's not only sovereign over all believers, but he works through all believers. The very next phrase, he's over all and through all. You know, God's got a plan for you. God's got a plan for me. And he will accomplish his purposes through you and I. That's what it means to work through all believers. We saw that a few weeks ago as we looked at Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So walk in them. So this shows God's imminence, his nearness. And then we see the final part is not over, not only overall in his sovereignty and supremacy, he is works through all, he works through believers for his good purposes, and he's in all through his indwelling spirit. This shows his, his imminence. So these same instructions that were given to this church many, many years ago, how are they relevant to you and I today? Well, firstly, as I said, this is a hinge. So understanding what God has done is really important in in our life and our walk together. Understanding the beauty of who we are in Christ shapes our walk. It shapes the manner of our walk. Our walk should be humble, it should be gentle, it should be patient. It shapes the means of our walk. We should be forbearing one another in love. We should be eager to maintain the unity we have through God's Spirit. Remember, this walk is empowered by God's Spirit and yet we have an opportunity to actively pursue our calling. This is the miracle of our life in Christ. He does it all and yet we actively are involved. Unity is a hallmark of a walk that is worthy of our calling because it reflects the triune God. Our God is over all, through all and in all. He does not leave us alone. He has prepared work for us to do. Our obedience to him is directly related to his calling of us. Our obedience is fueled by his grace. So this week, how will you walk? How will you walk this week? I, like Paul, want to exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this exhortation. We thank you that you command us to to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and, and yet you also provide the way through your indwelling spirit. Father, we pray that you will develop in our hearts a, a heart of humility, gentleness and patience. Father, develop in our heart to, a tolerance to the things that just that get in the way at times. Father, help us to persevere with one another for your glory.
We thank you for the wonderful example of the triune God who we worship. We thank you that the Spirit molds us into one body and gives us hope. We thank you that Christ has redeemed us, giving us a body of faith to to live by and, and we have a wonderful union with Him through baptism. And Father, we thank you that you are over all, through all and in all. You are supreme. And we fall at your feet this morning and ask for your grace uh, through our walk. Pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.